Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Uh, Creating a zero emissions electricity grid and cutting emissions out of Australia's transport, industry, land and other high emitting sectors is the great challenge of our time and our biggest opportunity. And it's also the subject of the latest quarterly essay written by Alan Finkel. Alan Finkel has just finished a five-year term as Australia's chief scientist and remains a special advisor to the Australian government on low emissions technologies. Uh, He's our guest this morning and welcome to Triple R, Alan. It's great to have you here. Good morning. Thank you, Kalia and Dylan. And so, look, politics is never far away when we talk about transitioning our economy to be net zero emissions, as you would know more than most. And I, I guess for our community radio audience, um, before we get into the particulars of the technologies and solutions you spell out in your essay, Alan, how would you um, sort of position, how would you describe where you sit in the public discussion on getting to net zero? Well, um, I see it's critically important that we get there for all the reasons that your listeners will be familiar with. Uh, basically, the need to stop the increasing global warming that is leading to climate change. Um, I recognise that, or I see technology as being key. Uh, we can't solve the problems that we've got just by goodwill. We can't solve them by behavioural change. We can't solve them by population control. Uh, Energy is critically important to our society, but that energy, of course, is delivered by, in the main, by fossil fossil fuels, coal, oil and gas. We need the energy to have the civilization we want and the expansion, the growth, the lifestyle that we um, like today and want for our children. So we have to replace those fossil fuels. So my essay is all about a technological alternative to what we have today. And, I mean, you, in your essay, you allude to uh, progress being hampered um, by sort of some at one end of the debate um, who sort of want uh, no change at all or very little change in relation to technology and, and broader energy transition and others at the other end who want to move faster than you say is necessarily feasible. I wonder if you can speak to that issue and, and sort of where we sit at the moment as we're, you know, looking towards um, achieving net zero emissions by 2050, but don't have sort of a great idea, at least at the federal level, about how exactly we'll we'll move forward and achieve that in this kind of short to medium term? Well, Dylan, as I say in my essay, I've taken the engineering approach and the art of engineering is optimisation. And what I mean there by example is if you're designing a bridge and you design the perfect bridge, it'll never get built because no one can afford it. If you compromise, it'll be a disaster and people will die. You have to optimise as an engineer. And I see the same here. Um, there, are, there are people who just don't want change, either because they deny the science or they can't cope with the change or they think that, look, it was done this way in the past, why shouldn't we keep doing that? And that's so unhelpful because the problem is real, it's manifest, it's happening now, Uh, we can't afford to delay, change is required. So that's a problem. On the other hand, 
simplifying the problem or oversimplifying and saying, look, you know, I've got solar panels at home, the battery in the basement problem solved for me, why can't we do it for the whole country? Um, that doesn't help either. It's a huge challenge. Uh, currently, 75% of all global greenhouse gas emissions are from burning fossil fuels for energy. And our civilization depends on it. Uh, we can't take that away. We have to replace it. And it's massive, 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 massive. In, you know, the capital expenditure in the fossil fuel industry is tens of trillions of dollars. The annual exp expenditure is in the many, many trillions of dollars. Um, for all the effort that's globally taken place over the last 15 or 20 years, we've just seen emissions going up. So the idea that we can just suddenly turn it around in five or a ten-year period uh, solve the problem, uh, that's not helpful because that's not tackling the problem. That's just wishing for an outcome. So what I've tried to do is say we can solve this problem, but we have to use all the available tools and we've got to apply them sensibly. So I'm not being middle of the road relaxed. I'm being middle of the road ambitious and saying there's an optimal way forward here. Yeah, I, I actually, um, similar to Dylan, was really taken by this idea of, of kind of pushing too fast or expecting, you know, I, I, I guess um, a lot in how, how fast we can make a transition to zero emissions, particularly with the energy system, that that can hinder progress. I'd love you to explore that a little bit more because I think a lot of people are wishful that it can be faster. And, um, you know, why is that potentially, um, you know, hindering, I guess, decision makers ability to, to bring it on? Well, the problem is that most of that wish, and I understand why, uh, manifests itself as an urgency to close down coal and gas. And we have to close down coal and gas. In fact, we have to close down coal-fired electricity generation as quickly as possible, because domestically, uh, coal-fired electricity generation is the biggest source of emissions. But if we close it down too quickly we will face economic disaster. So the question then becomes, how do you close it down as quickly as possible and what do you replace it with? Well, there's no doubt in this country we will be repli replacing the coal-fired electricity in Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria with solar and wind. And how quickly we can do that depends on how quickly we can build the solar and wind and support them. Because as you know, solar and wind are variable sources of energy. And yes, we can try to make as many of our loads as possible variable. But you know what? Sometimes you want to flick the switch and you want electricity. You don't want to get it just when that's available. So it's got to be supported. We all know that. And it can be supported by pumped hydro. It can be supported by batteries. And it can be supported by natural gas. Um, there's a lot of objection to using natural gas to supporting solar and wind. Uh, I feel that it's important to use what we've got available to bring in solar and wind as quickly as possible. And if the combination of solar and wind supported by natural gas helps us to close down coal plants without having significant impact on the stability and reliability of the electricity grid, then that's a good thing because the emissions that come from natural gas in a support role are very, very small. 
And you refer in your essay to, I mean, just on, on that issue of, of the role of natural gas going forward to a letter you received from 25 scientists um, last year, sort of taking issue, I suppose, with um, some of the comments you made about, about the role of natural gas in the energy mix going forward. And you sort of clarify that you're talking about um, natural gas as kind of firming technology, not necessarily um, being adopted instead of solar and wind. But I wonder, I suppose, reflecting on some people's and some scientists' concerns about that, does that reflect, do you think, uh, uh, I don't know, a lack of faith perhaps in, in what policymakers might actually move on to get us towards net zero, given that, you know, climate change has been so politicised in recent years and there might be a bit of a, a worry that um, it won't sort of just provide that firming capacity that, that you say it sort of needs to? I think it actually more reflects a lack of understanding of the dynamics of the electricity market and the times that we're living in. So if you go back 15 years ago in America, they had the start of the shale gas boom. And what happened through that is natural gas became abundant and cheap and just for economic reasons, nothing to do with climate change, for economic reasons, natural gas started pushing coal-fired electricity out of the market because they could actually just run 24 hours a day natural gas burners uh, generating electricity at less cost than coal-fired systems. And so there in America you've seen a, quite a substantial, not a total, but a substantial replacement of coal by gas, not a replacement of coal by solar and wind. I don't anticipate that in the east coast of Australia, Queensland, New South Wales and, Vic and Victoria for two reasons. First of all, times have changed. Today, solar and wind are so low cost that they're always the preferred investment. I don't think we've built... Uh, we certainly haven't built a coal-fired generator in Australia um, in, in, in the East Coast since the early 2000s. The most recent one was one in Western Australia in 2009, so it's been a long time. And I don't think we've installed a new gas-fired turbine for at least three or four years. Why? Because investors see the economic advantage of solar and wind. So the circumstances are very, very different uh, in terms of the alternative technology. And also, our gas is not nearly as cheap as the gas in America. And so for economic reasons, uh, gas-fired generators today don't provide cheaper electricity than coal. They're much more expensive than coal. So the replacement for coal will be solar and wind in the main, with a little bit of gas and then, of course, increasingly batteries to support them. I just can't see how, nor would we want to, go to a replacement of coal by gas. So I think that the scientists are saying, gosh, we've got to reduce fossil fuel emissions immediately. I'm saying we've got to reduce them as quickly as we can. And the quickest way to do that is to make sure that when that we can install solar and wind as rapidly as possible and that they are su supported, firmed up, so that we have the reliable electricity system that we need. Alan Finkel's with us. Uh, he's the author of Getting to Zero, which is the latest quarterly essay. And of course, he uh, was our chief scientist here in Australia. He's just um, completed a five-year term in that role. And in that role, you were behind really like three major reports to government, um, the National Electricity Market Review, the National Hydrogen Strategy, the Low Emissions Technology Roadmap um, last year. And I'm, I'm wondering, like, after doing these, where do you see that balance, Alan, between you know what policy can do, what government 
government can do and, and what the market does for us because I was just thinking when you were talking about the you know the transition away from from coal we've been tripped up a few times with coal fire power station owners saying well actually we're taking it out of the market maybe earlier than we expected where what's you know what's that balance between policy and then markets how how can we make that a smooth and orderly transition as you spell out in your essay Look, um, I, as, you, as we've been discussing, I've been focusing on technology, but it doesn't live in a vacuum and the policy Unfortunately not. around it. <laughs> we certainly don't. And the policy around it is important. The, the market design is important. Community acceptance is important. And that's a difficult balance. And uh, the arguments on all sides um, are actually not helpful. And, um, you know, but the trouble... You know, but, but, it, but it's a country. We live in a democracy. Um, if it was... Australia Proprietary Limited and we had a CEO and a management team, we could really design our transition forward um, probably more effectively, but we might lose a lot of the innovative um, designs that are out there as well. So we have to live with what we've got. At the end of the day, it's going to be technology-driven. The third of those three reviews that you mentioned, the Low Emission Technology Roadmap, um, was uh, the first version of it was put out in September of last year. There was $2 billion worth of funding by the federal government to support that and a commitment for a further $18 billion during this decade. That's all, you know, that's a good thing. It's making a difference already. The principle behind it is is simple, that there are new technologies such as zero emission steel. Zero emission steel, let me talk about that just for a second. It's important globally, not so much in Australia, but globally, more than 7% of, net, of greenhouse gas emissions just come from making steel. So it's important that we can replace metallurgical coal, coal used in steel making, with hydrogen and renewable electricity so you can make zero emission steel. But at the moment, there's a green premium. It's much more expensive to make zero emission steel. So there will be early adopters, such as car manufacturers, who want to sell their cars and don't mind charging $200 more because they know that people will pay $200 more to buy a car that was built from zero emission steel. But skyscraper buildings, you know, it's unlikely that those sorts of people would pay millions of dollars more for green steel. So there's a green premium. The principle in the low emission technology roadmap is through research and collaborative investment in, uh, with industry on demonstration programs and deployment. We can help the volumes build up so that the green or zero emissions alternative comes down the cost curve to the point that the green premium disappears. At that point, you're, now you're at a tipping point and everybody piles into the green alternative, which gets cheaper. And now you've got a, a green discount. So this idea of going from a green premium through zero to green discount sounds maybe loony or aspirational, but we've seen it already with solar and wind, solar and wind, solar. 10 years ago, it was much more expensive than coal-fired electricity. And today, it's significantly cheaper. So we've gone from a world in electricity generation of a green premium to green discount. And we need to do that for steel-making, aluminium. We need to do it in agriculture, which will be very difficult, but there is a pathway for that as well. We need to do it in building heating. And with the Low Emission Technology Roadmap, we've tried to map out a whole-of-economy approach to this pathway. You sort of uh, outline in this essay how your sort of technology 
agnostic. Um, you know, you're really sort of focused on how we can get to net zero in the most achievable way and fastest way sort of possible, um, you know, by investing in, in particular technologies at, at certain points in time. You are, though, sort of very uh, supportive of the role of hydrogen going forward in, in Australia's energy mix. I wonder if you can speak to that and, and what role you imagine hydrogen can play going forward. So I imagine, and I use the phrase in there, that we're driving towards an electric planet where all of our current primary energy sources, which are dominated by coal, oil and gas, will be replaced by electricity, by clean electricity. Some countries, not in Australia, that might be nuclear. In some countries, uh, like Norway and Canada, that'll be dominated by hydroelectricity. But in Australia, that transition to zero emissions electricity will be dominated by solar and wind. Now, electricity is marvellous. You could almost call it magic Um, There's very little you can't do with electricity, but sometimes it's not the most convenient way of delivering the energy. Uh, Think about transport for those big B-double trucks that go all the way across Australia, interstate trains and ships that carry 150,000 tonnes of of wheat or iron ore from here to the other side of the planet. Uh, Powering them with batteries, with the current and, say, the near-term, medium-term foreseeable batteries, is not conceivable. The weight of batteries would exceed the cargo and the weight of the ship combined. But if you can use electricity to crack water, to make hydrogen, and then condense the hydrogen into a liquefied form, you've now got a high-density transportable fuel that you can use for those big maritime ships and the interstate trains. Um, Similarly, if you make hydrogen, you can use hydrogen to replace coal in steelmaking. So what I'm seeing is that our energy will really come from solar and wind electricity, but in some cases, we need to convert that into hydrogen because hydrogen would just be more convenient as a chemical than the electrons that comprise electricity. And I mean, you say in the essay about, you know, yes, we must be ambitious, um, you know, we must be patient. And, and you've even said in this conversation that we've seen shifts happen already where um, the, you know, the advancement of the economy is is now the same pretty much as the the advancement of net zero technologies that they're they're hand in glove, I guess. Um, and it's now up to us, you know, um, how well we handle this, how well we handle the transition in Australia. Do you think that we're well positioned to handle it well, Alan? Or, you know, um, I, I guess people are more inclined to be patient if they feel like it's in hand. Is it in hand, do you think? Look, it... It's not perfect by any means, but we're making better progress than people acknowledge, and for a raft of reasons. But when you look at um, the talk rather than the walk, what you'll see is that our emissions are down 19% on our 2005 baseline. The OECD, so the Organisation of Economically Developed Countries, um, it's on average only down about 13%. So we're way ahead of many of the countries in the advanced countries. We have the highest per capita rate of installed solar in the world. We have the highest rate of solar rooftops in the world. We've got a very effective government-owned green bank called the CEFC. Um, we're actually doing... And then, of course, we've got the contributions from the state governments, the territory governments and companies. So all up, we're, we're moving 
in the right direction, not as fast as I would like, but faster than we're often given credit for. So my answer is to you, it's complex. Uh, of course, we can do better, but it's important to acknowledge what we've achieved and build on that rather than just take a, um, a negative attitude and say, well, it's all hopeless. It's not hopeless. There's a lot that's happening and we can build on that and do even better. And as part of your, your current role, I understand you've been doing quite a bit of work internationally, meeting with policymakers overseas um, and politicians overseas. How much sort of hope or optimism, I suppose, do you have about the, the move towards decarbonisation in the international space and, and Australia's role in that? So this is a fascinating year. The Biden administration has come in what can I say? All guns blazing. Um, they're talking in terms like $3 trillion this decade in infrastructure investments that would support a transition to a low emissions economy. In fact, they want to zero out their emissions from the electricity grid by 2035, um, which would be quite remarkable if they can achieve it, but they're, they're really serious about it. And they're trying to motivate more ambition from all countries around the world. So President Biden has a climate leaders summit coming up on April the 22nd. He's invited the leaders from 40 uh, significant countries, including Australia, uh, to talk about ambition, financing and technology. Um, that is just so different to what we've seen in previous years. And on top of that, you've got COP. 26, so that's the fifth anniversary meeting from the Paris Agreement coming up in Glasgow in November of this year. Um, in, uh, and the United Kingdom, as co-president, is taking a very, very active role in trying to have all countries come to that COP26 meeting in Glasgow with increased national commitments to reducing emissions, um, with key milestones between now and 2050, but ultimately to zero in 2050. So there's significant international uh, movement that's both inspirational and challenging. And I feel that that international enthusiasm coupled with the enormous breakthroughs that we've seen in solar and wind and batteries in the last 10 years means that the next 10 years has the potential just to transform the trajectory that we're on to the trajectory that we want to be on. So I'm quite excited. Uh, look, the way that you explained that there, it is incredibly exciting and I think the momentum building internationally hopefully is um, infectious and, um, you know, that, that 2035 target for the United States to achieve um, zero emissions really for its electricity grid is just, you know... Not the whole economy, not the whole economy, it's zero emissions in the electricity it, sector. That's right, That's yeah, that's what I said, the electricity sector and, that, I mean, that's just a really big step, as you say in your essay, that is a step and then you electrify more and then more because we've got to run other sectors from energy and from electricity um, as part of that, that transition. Um, you also remind us in the essay that our states and territories all have net zero bio before 2050 commitments. Um, we don't have that yet at the federal level. Do you think that the, the 22nd of April Earth Day meeting um, in the US and, and the meeting later in the year in Glasgow, um, that Australia will um, 
set that target and I guess, you know, vocalise that we will actually aim and achieve that net zero by 2050 target, um, Alan? Or do you, do you think that um, it's, it's, it's not actually that important that we do that? So I don't know the answer as to whether we will. Um, it's obviously complicated, a lot of politics and decision-making the government has to make. Um, you've seen significant movement in the last 12 to 15 months. We're starting January of last year. The Prime Minister really began talking about the significance of climate change in um, impacting the severity of bushfires. Uh, he and the Minister for Energy and Emissions Reduction, Angus Taylor, launched the Low Emissions Technology Roadmap. And we've now seen the Prime Minister say that net zero is not a matter of what or why, it's a matter of how and when, and that Australia intends to get to net zero, preferably by 2050. So we've seen a lot of significant movement towards a net zero commitment. It's not quite there yet, but um, we'll see what happens during the course of the year. I really can't predict well, we'll be ambitious and patient. Um, there but, you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's been really wonderful having your time here on 3 Triple R, Ellen. We've kept you longer than we said we would, and um, I just think that goes to the importance of the topic you've covered. Um, thanks so much for, for doing it, and um, all the best as well. I'm hoping now, five years as Chief Scientist, perhaps you can do some more writing, and it's great to have your quarterly essay. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Kelly and Dylan. Getting to Zero, Australia's Energy Transition. The author is Alan Finkel, uh, and uh, you can get your hands on Quarterly Essay. It's out there now. We love a good Quarterly Essay. Very readable, too. He, he distills some complex science into very yeah. readable language as well. If you ever wondered about, you know, why this technology or that technology, and perhaps you have such discussions in your household, this will arm you with the arguments that you need. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. And while the muck has been coming out of Canberra throughout this month, uh, Crikey has been running a series of reports into corruption in Australia and in our politics called The Dirty Country. Uh, their series ran over eight days, shining a light on where soft corruption pervades through political donations, port barrelling, a culture of silence and reduced transparency and influence in property and planning decisions to name a handful. Bernard Keane is politics editor at Crikey and welcome back to Triple R. Bernard, it's great to have you there. Good morning. And I'm guessing that you're already working on this series uh, before the recent scandals kind of brought home to us again that something is really not right in the culture of Australian politics and your dog there knows all about it. Uh, exactly. Uh, that's, that's the neighbour's dog. It's, it's, this is life living in an uh, area with poor reception. So, uh, um, yeah, look, this is a series that's, um, well, if you, you've only got to look at it to see the kind of structural issues that um, that we tackled uh, in, um, uh, in in this series. So, you know, there are long-running sores, and one of the key, one of the big challenges, I guess, for me was to write something about these issues that was a little bit new because I've been covering these issues for so long. I've been covering political donations, for example, since I started with Crikey back in 2008. And, um, uh, you know, it's oftentimes it's very hard to find a new insight, but I think we managed to. Uh, but it just reflects how long-running these fundamental issues are about the way that, you know, business as usual is done in Australian politics and 
and the way that it's accepted when if you actually stand back and, and have a look at these structural issues, you know, you really can't conclude anything but that there is something profoundly wrong with a lot of the business as usual practices that we've got. Yeah, and I mean, Australia has for a long time rated, I mean, fairly well in global corruption, corruption and the Global Corruption Index, for example, but our position has sort of slipped in recent years, which um, you acknowledge in, in one of your articles. I wonder what that reflects about, I guess, the way that corruption is typically measured and um, your decision to focus explicitly or largely in this um, series on so-called soft corruption. Yeah, so the, the whole, one of the big issues is, is the definition of corruption. And that's a, that's a really challenging thing. Corruption is one of these things that everyone thinks they know, but actual definitions are, um, uh, are pretty tricky. Australia's got pretty strong laws around what you might call hard corruption or corruption. You know, things like where it's very obvious what it is. So someone offering a bribe in exchange for approving a, you know, a subdivision or a... Or a you know, a major planning change is something that's pretty straightforward. We know what that is. We know bribery is a, it's a criminal offence. It's not, it's not there's something that there's any sort of um, uh, ambiguity about. What we decided to focus on, though, was, was what's called soft corruption, which is, uh, which is where people are trying to achieve the same kinds of results um, that people, uh, you know, engaging in things like bribery are trying to achieve, but they're doing it through what you might say is, is legitimate ends. They're doing it through uh, political donations, they're doing it through lobbying, they're doing it through meetings with ministers, i.e. they're using the very political process itself to achieve those sorts of ends. And to my way of thinking, if you're trying to achieve the diversion of resources or some sort of outcome away from the public interest toward the private interest, then that's the same kind of outcome uh, that someone's trying to achieve when they're engaging in something like bribery. So this is what I mean about stepping back and saying, to what extent are the business-as-usual practices of politics um, something that actually is more about corruption than about uh, normal good political and policy process. Yeah, and I think um, uh, it, in the series it was written quite well to sort of define, again, what you mean by this. So influence wielding can be called consultation. Buying access um, can be seen as the cost of supporting the democratic process, pork barrelling, legitimate investment in the regions, and this idea that if you think of it in a different way, then it's, it's no longer corruption in the minds of some. Is this the kind of cor- soft corruption that um, that you are calling the cosmic background radiation to public life in Australia, Bernard. But you're also, I guess, in pointing this out and pointing out that we have to see this corruption again. We have to change the way that BAU is and actually call it what it is. How do we do that? What are some of the, the solutions that you are um, looking at when, and when trying to work out how we can turn this around, hopefully? Well, there's a big one of the fundamental kind of issues in all this is exactly what kind of solutions work when dealing with um, business as usual corruption. So, um, for example, political donations are accepted as a normal part of the way that politics is done in Australia. And I guess you can argue there. You know, look, I've spoken to to you know corporate types and lobbyists who say, look, you know, what's wrong with political donations? We understand that there's a cost of actually participating in um, uh, in Australian politics, you know, we're trying to support political parties 
to do that. But the way that it's sort of turned into a process of influence peddling in Australia really demonstrates how what you might, you know, many people might say is a legitimate process, you know, becomes completely illegitimate. So the majority of, or at least a substantial of the funds that are now raised for political parties are done through basically influence peddling. So you buy a plate at a, at a dinner with uh, a, a minister or a shadow minister. You get to sit there at the table with them. You get to hear their insights into what's happening in politics and policy. You get to explain to them your particular problems. You get to try and influence their decision-making, their thoughts about particular issues in a way that that community groups, that ordinary voters, that uh, you know, most of us who who are you know aren't political donors, never get the chance to do. And I think we've got to kind of re-see that process as as fundamentally uh, illegitimate. Why do people who get to pay money to political parties get that chance, that really important chance to influence decisions, when the rest of us are kind of locked out of that process? And by the way, all that happens in secret. Too. There's no accountability for that. There's no record of, 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 uh, of who did what, uh, except much, much later when we get the annual um, uh, donations returned. So that's just one example of how you know we need to kind of re-see the process. But a lot of a lot of the kind of the, the ways that uh, we might be able to deal with corruption issues. A big issue, for example, is around property development and um, planning decisions and, and uh, subdivisions, whether it's whether it's state governments or local governments, uh, a huge area of corruption, um, uh, particularly here in New South Wales, but, but also in Victoria and, uh, uh, and Queensland as well, uh, where property developers who stand to make vast amounts of money, particular planning decisions, try and influence those decisions. Now... One of the techniques that's been adopted in New South Wales for dealing with that is you simply take decision-making out of the hands of politicians. So what's been in Sydney now is that local councils don't get to approve major property development applications anymore. They go to an independent panel of experts. And that is, it seems to me, a great way of ensuring that you reduce the scope for property developers to really influence decisions. The problem with that, though, is that, you know, what's democracy for? Democracy should really be about community electing representatives to represent the values and make those sorts of decisions for them. So putting in a a panel of experts basically says the democratic process has failed and you have to have these sort of technocrats come in and um, uh, and make decisions for us. So what does that say about the quality of our democracy? We can't trust it to deliver those sorts of um, decisions. So that's you know that's an example of the kind of you know the, one of the fundamental problems that dealing with corruption effectively um, produces in a in a democracy. Yeah, it's a really interesting point, Bernard, and it sort of goes to that you know mechanisms that might address some of these systemic issues that, um, as outlined in in a number of your articles, that these kind of processes are very much sort of baked into the way that the political system operates and the standard processes of policy making. There have been sort of events in recent recent times if we think about the you know so-called sports rot scandal and um, um, and issues around water buybacks
Olympics as well, where the public has kind of seen instances of, of likely corruption where politicians have sort of influenced the allocation of resources to benefit often themselves or, or their um, direct sort of constituents or to benefit their political party in certain instances. But I wonder whether, I mean, we're seeing at the moment a real, what feels like a reckoning in federal politics with the way that women have been treated for a very, very long time and, you know, Liberal MPs willing to speak out on issues um, without sort of going through the filter of, of the federal um, sort of cabinet and, and sort of going to, you know, Scott Morrison's talking points first. But I wonder whether you could imagine any sort of reckoning happening in relation to corruption in the sense that you unpack it in this series, given the, the way that MPs directly often benefit from the processes as they are at the moment. Yeah, so I think there's a, there's a real problem there because there are no strong incentives for, um, for the political class to really address corruption properly. Um, there, are, there, are, there, are, there are now a growing set of incentives for the political class to address gender issues, workplace issues, um, uh, partly because there are now many more women in politics, particularly on the, on the progressive side of politics, um, and that forms a constituency within the political class itself to kind of push for change uh, and drive change. And, and clearly what's happened in the last few weeks is a, you know, an explosion of rage about, about uh, issues around sexual assault, harassment, workplace, toxic work. It's proving uh, the public, uh, political class to ignore... Uh, as much as I think Scott Morrison would like to ignore it. Um, the corruption is, though, that there is no constituency to do that, um, either within the political class or really outside the political class. Corruption is not an issue that, unless it's, you know, egre- you know egregious examples of corruption that we, of the kind that we've seen in New South Wales, um, it's not the sort of issue that changes votes. It's not the sort of issue that really gets people marching in the streets. Um, and the incentives in politics are all for politicians to continue business as usual. So you touched on the sports rorts. Um, I mean, pork barrelling is a classic example of... I mean, look, voters hate pork barrelling. They think it's, you know, cynical politics. They assume that both sides do it, and there's, you know, a certain degree of truth to that. Um, but it's not something that will change their votes. Um, it's very clean in New South Wales, despite actually defending pork barrelling and, and saying that, uh, you know, she's, you know, guilty as charged, I pork barrel, but, you know, that's life. Um, you know, that hasn't dented popularity. So it's, uh, you know, it's a, uh, you know, it, it, that's one demonstration of the way in which um, uh, there are no strong incentives for politicians to really embrace integrity. I mean, if you look at some examples, Nick Greiner, uh, who was one of the best premiers New South Wales has ever had, he established the ICAC, Australia's first um, uh, anti-corruption and integrity body in New South Wales. He ended up being one of its most high-profile victims uh, a couple of years later. So any politician looking at his example would think, well, what on earth will I ever bother to, um, to pursue integrity measures? Another example is Kevin Rudd, who put in place via John Faulkner a whole platform of uh, integrity measures, you know, changes to FOI, um, uh, you know, tried to be, you know, tried to put in place much better political donations, uh, put in place a, you know, a, a lobbyist register, you know, a whole suite of those things. There was no political benefit for the Rudd government to ever do that. There was no voters never said, oh, it was good to see a government that's actually trying to improve integrity and transparency. That's a tick. Um, because what are voters focused on? Well, they're focused on the economy and on the health system and on education. So 
that's another example of what I mean by the fact that there are no strong incentives for politicians to go, yeah, let's embrace integrity and anti-corruption. Let's really push forward with this. It's there's only dis- downside risk for There's it. a disincentive, that's right. That's exactly it. So, you know, who wants to end up like Nick Greiner? Yeah. Uh, who wants to end up like, like Kevin Rudd, who got criticised uh, in 2013 when he was Prime Minister again for, for changing some of the rules around government advertising? I mean, it's a... And it's a no-win scenario for any politician. Yeah, and just lastly, Bernard, I mean, you've been following this issue for a long time as a journalist and obviously most recently you've put together this um, series for Crikey. What's the role of journalism in exposing this kind of corruption and, I guess, turning up the heat on politicians to properly address it? Well, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, journalists are supposed to be the watchdogs of... um, of this is this sort of issue, and and that's a role that that uh, the Australian media ha- has played with uh, some success, and uh, you know particularly in particularly at the state level. I mean, I think journalists are much better at um, at focusing on state level corruption because it's more obvious. I mean, you can you know if there's a if there's a if there's a corruption scandal involving a major property development, you know it's or, or, or a dodgy mine lease as we've seen in New South Wales, those things are kind of pretty straightforward and they're much closer to the kind of black or hard corruption that we talked about earlier. Where I guess the media has been less successful is dealing with soft corruption. Um, it's much less successful at saying, well, this is a business-as-usual practice that shouldn't be business-as-usual. Um, you know, a lot of these soft corruption practices in Australia are not, you know, they're, they're, they're banned in other countries, or there are much stricter rules around around it. They're not business as usual in other countries. So, I mean, I think I think federal political journalists have got to get a lot better at seeing through business as usual, understanding actually no, that shouldn't be business as usual. That's actually a diversion of public resources or public uh, sector decision making to the interests of the private sector and that's exactly the same sort of outcome as uh, someone who goes and tries to bribe a politician or bribe a, a regulator is trying to achieve. It's just that they're doing it through uh, more accepted means and the outcome from the public point of view is exactly the same. And I, I guess if Canberra is um, seeking to um, turn itself into a model workplace, this is another area that they can be looking at. Thanks so much for sharing it with us, Bernard. Uh, it's good to talk to you. Bernard King there, politics editor at Crikey, and you can read the whole Dirty Country series on the Crikey website. It looks at corruption in Australia and in Australian politics. Triple. And we've been hearing a lot about the experiences of women in federal politics. We have three tiers of government here in Australia and we're going to be turning it around and having a look at what's happening at the local government level. Um, Associate Professor Leah Rupana has been, oh, is in the midst of a research project having a look at the experiences of women in local government and she's our guest next. Melbourne Theatre Company returns to the main stage this March with the gripping drama Sexual Misconduct of the Middle Classes by Hannah Moscovich, presented by Triple R. Directed by Petra Kaleev and starring Dan Spielman and Isabella Yenna, this Australian premiere production takes the student-teacher romance genre and turns it on its head for a fascinating and potent exploration of power, truth and desire. On stage now, until April 1. Tickets at mtc.com.au. Triple R Sponsors. Radio Marinara, Sundays at 9am with the Marinara team. Bringing a quirky and informative look at all that is marine. 
Get to know all things wet and salty. Tune into Radio Marinara via FM, digital, online, on demand, or via the app. There's been a lot of talk lately about the treatment of women in Canberra, with a flurry of former staffers and politicians going public with allegations ranging from sexual assault at the more extreme end to a sexist work culture that tends to benefit men. Much of the focus has been on federal politics, but new research points to very similar dynamics at the local government level. A survey into the experience of female council candidates in Victoria reveals how women are far more likely to experience gendered harassment than their male counterparts. And this comes despite a record number of women being voted in at last year's council elections. Leah Rupana is an Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Melbourne. She's one of the researchers involved in this project and joins us on the line. Leah, thanks so much for being there. Thank you so much for having me. And these uh, findings feel incredibly timely. I wonder if you can tell us about this research you're doing and I guess why you decided to, to go public with, um, with what the work you've done so far. Yeah, so we have a four-year Australian Research Council grant along with the Victorian Local Governance Association to look at what's happening for this new cohort of um, councillors at the local government level, to take them from the beginning of their journey when they're thinking about putting their hands up, follow them through to when they are or are not elected, and see what happens to them for the next four years, right, because they get elected into an election cycle. So what we did was... We started off by interviewing and surveying people who were interested in putting their hands up for local government. Because one of the challenges is a pipeline question, right? You can't actually have equal representation if you can't get women to put their hands up to participate in government. And we talk a lot about the federal level, we talk a lot about the state level, but local government is so integral and so important because this is where many of us have our touchstones with government. And this is a moment where many women are stepping into this to just kind of try it out or, you know, contribute back to their community. And so what we did was we interviewed and we surveyed the women who were interested and then the women who were successful. And one of the themes that was coming through quite clearly is that these women were experiencing sexual abuse, like assault, abuse, verbal harassment online. And they were really feeling like that was a challenge for them in both their desire to participate, in their ability to do their jobs. And if we want equal representation, we need to address this idea that, you know, you can do anything to politicians because they're, they sit in a different public sphere. Well, this is actually a workplace. And if we see that women are experiencing kind of um, violence and abuse in ways that are distinct to their gender, and that pushes them out or makes their experience in that job more difficult, that is a problem. And how do we make sure we address this in a um, responsible and ethical way to make sure that we're not driving women out of local government, not driving women out of state government, not driving women out of federal government, just because they're experiencing these high levels of harassment and abuse. So this is one of the kind of critical things that came out from the first round um, that seems quite timely now. But don't you worry, we'll have like way more findings coming through over the next four years. So I know you'll invite me back to tell you. Oh, yeah. I love it. Absolutely. (laughs) This is part of a continuing conversation with Associate Professor Leah Rupana. Um, But you're also speaking. So when you talk about the cohort, Leah, you're also speaking about um, speaking and surveying men in that cohort as well. Is that how it's working? 
absolutely. So we can't, we want to benchmark the women's experiences against the men's experiences and seeing how that follows over time. So one of the things we were initially thinking is, you know, this is really going to be something about kind of work-family conflict, their ability to step into paid and unpaid work, and how, you know, that we're going to see kind of the manifestations that we see in regular employment happening in local government, and that's a challenge. That was kind of the overarching concept, but what came through quite clearly at the beginning, starting off, and what is receiving, you know, kind of national headlines is that their experience of abuse within these positions, their experience of harassment within, you know, putting their hands up is already coming through as a key theme. And we just felt like this is a moment to say, hey, wait a minute, let's also talk about how women in local government are experiencing the same levels of abuse. It's not a federal problem. It's not a state problem. It's a systematic problem. And how do we really put a spotlight on these women to show that their experiences are tracking what's happening at other levels of government? And at the federal level, I mean, there's been a lot said about the um, the ability for people to make complaints when they um, have these types of experiences, um, you know, as part of their job. Do you have much of a sense from the data that you have so far whether women felt like they could make a complaint and, and if they did, that there were proper mechanisms in place to sort of have that properly dealt with? Yeah, this is really interesting. So one of the, um, we did interviews and one of the kind of themes that came through one interview was that, yeah, this woman had raised this uh, concern um, up to the police and kind of was dismissed, raised it up into an institutional mechanism that was supposed to support her. And it was dismissed. And in part, it was dismissed because there was this attitude of like, well, you're a politician and you're stepping into this kind of public space. And that bullying is just part of that job, right? Like this is just part of the experience of being a public official. If you're out there publicly, you should expect some shade being thrown your way. Like, okay, let's just take that as um, this is not just a public position. This is actually a, a job. And that's, I think, an issue around the way in which we think about what's appropriate, how we treat our politicians. And, and that's like a, an ideological shift that needs to happen to think about this as a workplace as opposed to just a place where we can spew whatever hate we want or frustrations. If you're talking to them or engaging with your politicians around policy issues, that is a different mechanism, right? Like, if you want to express your discontent with your politicians about policy issues, appropriate. If you want to express your discontent with politicians about the way they look, the way they talk, um, their gender, problematic. That's not appropriate for um, in the public domain, but and that's where I think we need to talk about or highlight that these women are putting themselves up, putting their hands up to do this job, and what is the experience of them within this, not around their policy ideology, not around their political platforms, but around their gender. And, and I that's mean, an important piece. And you speak there about the attitudes and, and the treatment of elected leaders, um, women elected leaders by the public, but what have you found about the, the treatment of, of women in local government elected to office there and the treatment of other people, you know, that they're receiving from other people elected to office as well. Is that also an issue for them in, um, that you found through your surveys, Leah? Uh, like lateral violence, like bullying amongst each other. Um, we are, we, we haven't, that hasn't come through strongly, although I think, you know, that doesn't mean it 
is not happening. Uh, one of the things I think is wonderful about local government, and now I'm going to give a little shout out to the VLGA, is that you do have kind of institutional supports or institutional governing bodies that are really, really committed to supporting, um, nurturing, and ensuring that women have equal place, equal representation, and um, I don't want to say good experiences, but like are, are well trained to step into um Local government, local government, because it's a really important domain. So, in here, in this respect, the VLGA has been fantastic in terms of really trying to create policies uh, and and um, institutional supports to help the women who are stepping into these roles. Um, so, I can't speak necessarily to the lateral violence, but I can say that you know there is a governance agency that is very much committed to helping women thrive within local government. And that actually is really important, but a very important institutional piece. We're speaking with Associate Professor Leah Rupinar from the University of Melbourne, all about some uh, research projects she's part of into the experience of women in local government um, and speaking specifically about some early findings from a survey they've undertaken. And, uh, I mean, being sort of involved in local government often means taking on extra responsibilities on top of sort of a, um, a full or part-time job, for example. And we know, too, that, you know, women disproportionately do the bulk of domestic work and have um, greater caring responsibilities, um, generally speaking, than men do. Do you have much of a sense from the women that you've engaged um, at this stage as to whether, you know, this added burden, I suppose, of, of experiencing harassment, some varying levels of, of harassment, whether online or, um, or sort of, uh, you know, face-to-face, is leading them to want to get out of local government or perhaps not sort of act on pursuing what might be something they want to do um, as part of their career? A thousand percent that this is a real deterrent. This is a real sense of, you know, not wanting to participate in this sphere. And what you raised, I think, is so important because what we're learning from our data are twofold. One is that the women in our data who are um, putting their hands up and who are successful are less likely to be working full time. They're more likely to be holding part time jobs. But what they're doing is they're carrying a huge child care, aged care, um, caregiving responsibility on top of that. And what we know is that they're feeling stressed, right? I mean, we know this from, I do a bunch of work on this in the general public, that women who are balancing, you know, these competing pressures really do feel overwhelmed, overworked, stressed, and at their max. And we can imagine COVID has only pushed all of us closer to the edge, right? Like holistically as a culture, and then imagine people who are balancing extreme caregiving demands. So, what, what's happening is you have a group of women who are very much interested in participating and um, contributing to local government and their community. They're balancing caregiving demands on top of employment, on top of local government. And then you have the bullying thing going on top of it. And it's like, how much can one person take? Um, and I think that can be kind of this additive feeling about like, okay, you know, I, I um, uh, impetus for having people drop out. One of the other interesting things we're finding is we see that there's this missing cohort of young women, 35 or younger, from um, our, our sample, from putting their hands up. And part of that is that there is already uh, these caregiving demands. They are already feeling, you know, this is kind of the prime period of caregiving responsibility where you see a lot of times women drop out of paid employment. So it makes sense that they're not participating in local government as well. But if we already know that there are all of these barriers that make it much more difficult for women to step in, step up, be respected, um, and have have the um, their ability to do 
great things, which women do in government. They do great things in local government. They do great things in state government and federal government. There's research showing they behave differently. They vote differently. Um, but if you already know, there's this range of things that make it very difficult for women to to step in, and then you add gendered violence and gendered bullying on top of that, and you can just imagine it's one more barrier to getting in, one more reason to step out, one more reason to put your hands up and say, I don't want to be a part of this. And we are seeing that coming through our survey and our interviews. Yeah, it's such a chilling effect. And when you put it like that, uh, these women are becoming my heroes, um, Leah. But I wanted to ask, I know the Victorian government has been wanting to see more women in local government. Um, we are trying, you know, there, there's certain parties have things like quotas to try and get women into state and, and federal politics and the like. Um, how are we going with the, um, you know, the target of equal representation here in Victoria? Um, so federally and nationally, not great. Victoria is doing pretty good, um, pretty good in terms of reaching those uh, gender equal targets. But, it, but I guess what I should say is quotas are essential. If we could do it, if women could do it alone, you would just see it would happen and women would move in. But if we have all these barriers stepping in, quotas really are essential to making sure we have the spotlight on and supporting women. Um, I think it's important to think about how are we doing in terms of equal representation. That's one piece, and there is some good news there. But uh, we want to make sure that we're not bringing women in only to have them leave after four years to a trip, right, like to step out. That actually, if you have getting women in is one piece of the puzzle, and it's an important piece of the puzzle. But an integral piece of the puzzle is having them stay in uh, because in four years you learn a lot, right? You don't want employees coming in and churning through. You don't want to have an employee that comes in, does a great job and leaves after four years because the environment was too toxic or is too difficult to do it with family demands or fill in the blanks, right? That's actually an ineffective system. It's inefficient. So the quotas are one piece. They're an important piece and they're um, the, the first step. But making sure that we have women who then keep going or move their move up into higher levels or put their hand up again or whatever that maintain attached and engaged with the political process is critical because otherwise that's just a drain on productivity. That's a drain on all that investment, all that knowledge, all that growth that people do in a job for four years. So. I think it's important to think of them not as separate pieces and to think of them as integrated and then think about how do you create the institutional supports, the policies that allow women to stay in and to thrive yeah, because and, you don't want to lose that knowledge. And your research certainly suggests that having, you know, even sort of near equal representation isn't enough to address some, uh, you know, the, the harassment and um, negative experiences that women are having in local government compared to men. I mean, just finally, Leah, do you imagine that having this kind of information kind of out in the public sphere will lead to change, whether, you know, within individual local governments or perhaps kind of as a sector looking to how, um, you know, really negative abuse and, and, and gendered, um, uh, gendered abuse and, and attitudes that are circulated, particularly online, um, can be sort of addressed and, and stamped out as appropriate? 
Um, I'm an optimist. Like I, you can tell from my accent, I'm an American, and so we always say the world is going to be great. We live in great positivity. Um, so I will say, yeah. I mean, of course, putting a spot. I think what you're seeing is momentum building, and it's building across different areas of society. And that idea that, like, okay, when are we going to talk about this? Because this is not working for many women. Um, and so, yeah, of course, putting a spotlight is the first piece. I'm hopeful. I am hopeful that it will change, kind of. Um, discussions, but you need also institutional and policy changes that have that coincide with kind of changes in norms and the ways in which people think. But if we identify local government as one area that is really, really has the potential to be innovative, has the potential to be really inclusive, um, and make sure we get that right, then understanding how to get that right by understanding the experiences of women and men in local government is really an integral piece to then kind of bring that understanding to other levels of government and perhaps to other areas of society, to other employers. So it's one location to start for a bigger um, policy framework that could sit across other institutional levels. Well, it's very timely research and um, all the best with the the coming years, Leah, and uh, we'll hear about it on Triple R. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's delightful. Associate Professor Leah um, Rupana there from the University of Melbourne speaking about the research that uh, she is doing into uh, women in local government. And you can go and um, check out some of the early findings. Um, you can head to the conversation, um, the Mandarin. Uh, there's some articles there that you can read about it. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.